You've probably seen these bingo cards for the year 2020 covered in all sorts of doomsday scenarios, some of which are funny, others altogether too real. Well, we've crowdsourced this one with your suggestions, and we're going to cover three of the possibilities in today's show. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's check out what's on our radar. The military has ruled out human error and equipment failure as causes for an accident that killed two Marines and left another in critical condition. The accident occurred during a drill last Friday when the raiding craft that the Marines were riding in capsized in rough seas. The Education Ministry is promising to install air conditioning in all of the nation's schools by the summer of 2022. Despite Taiwan's hot climate, only 80% of high schools and just 37% of elementary and middle schools have air conditioning. Over the past few years, Taiwan has recorded a string of record-breaking temperatures, making air conditioning vital to student safety. But the government says there will be rules about when it can be used to make sure schools aren't wasting electricity. This year's bluefin tuna catch in Pingdong County's Donggang Township is the biggest in 11 years. Local fishermen caught 2,900 of the fish, double their catch last year. Good weather and a leap year are being credited for the bounty. But while seafood lovers may be excited, fishermen are bemoaning the fact that more fish means lower prices. And under the radar this week, we're staying in Donggang Township for a look at a stunning nighttime phenomenon along the shoreline. Locals are reporting what's called blue tears in Mandarin, a sparkly blue glow caused by bioluminescent microorganisms in the water. And now for our words of the week. Andrew, you ready to guess? Yes, what do you have? Okay. Fabulous. Uh, fun. <laughs> no. Fear. Fear, yes. Well, in Hong Kong, and actually throughout the world, people are a little bit afraid or maybe very afraid of what China may do with the new national security law. And uh, this week I spoke with a veteran journalist there, Frank Ching, and we'll be featuring a part of the interview in today's show about what he thinks about that law. Mm, looking forward to that. Uh, you ready for my word? Yes. All right. Victory. <laughs> Voracious. <laughs> Volume. Volatile. Excellent. Ah, so volatile could be used to describe the entire year of 2020. That's true. It could be used to describe all of the things on our little bingo grid that we showed you at the top of the show. could also be used to describe potentially the volcanoes in our midst. How volatile are they? I'll be talking about that in today's Taiwan Explained. Great. Let's put these on the shelf. Volcanoes in Taiwan. Well, we always knew that Taiwan was created by volcanoes, but we always thought they were extinct. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to be telling you why they are creating a brand new volcano warning system for Taiwan. All right. This is exciting, kind of. Yeah, kind of scary. <laughs> yes, but uh, tell us what we need to know, Andrew. All right. Well, let's start off with telling you where these volcanoes are located. Now, if you live in northern Taiwan, you're definitely going to want to watch this. It's hard to imagine a volcano erupting in Taiwan, but there are actually volcanoes in Taipei, including more than 20 in the Datun Volcano Group. And then there's Turtle Island off the coast of Yilan County. Taiwan's top research body, Academia Seneca, says that what were thought to be extinct volcanoes are actually active. 
The Central Weather Bureau's Lin Zhu Wei says there's evidence of a volcanic eruption some 6,000 years ago. Academia Sinica says that seismic waves suggest there's a magma chamber about 30 kilometers deep. And like a ticking time bomb, the Datun volcanoes could go off at any time. And in their path, some of Taipei's most populated districts, Taiwan's tallest building, Taipei 101, is just 15 kilometers away. So, Andrew, how likely could a volcano erupt in Taipei? Well, uh, the last time it happened, as we just heard, was about 6,000 years ago. Now, in order for it to be extinct, it has to be 10,000 years ago. But still, 6,000 years, that's, that's, that's a, a long time. time. Yeah. yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> we so shouldn't I, worry too much. Uh, but still, we have this new warning system just in case. And it's a three-tier warning system that I'm going to tell you about now. So first of all, a green light indicates normal activity. A yellow light suggests abnormal activity and means that a watch is in effect. And a red light is a warning that an eruption has taken place or could take place soon. So if there happens to be an eruption or is about to be an eruption, what's going to happen is they're going to send us one of those like presidential alerts like we get for a typhoon or uh, a similar natural disaster. And what they do is they geo-target those text messages. So it'll send it to everybody that's in the vicinity that could be affected. So how do they know a volcano would erupt? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked me that. So scientists are looking at three different things. Uh, the first is they're looking at changes in the Earth's crust. The second is they're uh, detecting certain types of gases which may be released from inside the Earth. And the last is they're monitoring changes to underwater temperatures. Okay, so we hope those things don't happen, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is our Taiwan Explained on Volcanoes. Now, another hot spot we are worried about is Hong Kong. Last week, China enacted a new national security law there. It criminalizes vaguely defined acts of secession, subversion of state power, terrorism, collusion with foreign entities, and the highest penalty is life in prison. Now, how do people in Hong Kong feel about the new law? Well, this week I spoke with veteran journalist, writer, and professor at Chinese University of Hong Kong, Frank Ching. He tells us about the mood of the people there. I think the, the mood, uh, generally speaking, is uh, somber. Mm. People are uh, taking this very seriously. They're not sure exactly what's going to happen next. Uh, there are some people who are quite alarmed. Uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, leaving Hong Kong, you know, emigrating to somewhere else, including Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people are, are also uh, trying to scrub out what they had said previously on social media. You know, people around the world are actually very nervous about the law, too. Officials in Taiwan have been telling us here to avoid unnecessary travel to Hong Kong. Their American academics are saying that this law has targeted everyone on the face of the earth. Because if you've said something that is offensive to China, they could you know, detain you if you're transiting through Hong Kong. Do you think that we need to be that nervous? Well, I, I think it's better to be cautious, but uh, this law really is a law about Hong Kong. So if, if people had said something critical of China in the past uh, and that had nothing to do with Hong Kong, I don't think that uh, 
this should be any additional uh, cause for concern. Evan, for you as a journalist, as a political scientist, um, are you going to change the way that you express yourself, so the things that you say, oh. the things that you write? Well, I've gotten messages from friends uh, to be careful. And I'll be careful. I'll, I won't do anything that I, I think is wrong. But it's, I'll continue to do my job. I'll continue to write and say what I think. Uh, and I, I think that uh, what I think is reasonable. And if I publish what I think, I don't think it should get me in trouble if the system itself is a reasonable system. But is it a reasonable system? Well, we'll have to see. So are you, you're not afraid for your, your own life and, and career? Oh, well, I, I am uh, concerned. As I, as I said, the, the idea disturbs me greatly that somebody could knock down my front door, come in and, and seize me or do uh, all kinds of things. And I, I have no recourse. No, as I said, I can't call up the police and say, oh, somebody's doing this thing to me because nobody can help me. These people are above the law. So I, I think that that is uh, very concerning. Uh, but then the, the authorities, the powers that be keep saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry. Only a very small number of people uh, will be targeted by this. Like uh, Hong Kong has seven and a half million people. So would the... Um, very few people be one percent. One percent of seven and a half million is uh, what seventy thousand. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of people. That's, that's a lot of people. Despite his concerns, Ching says he'll be staying in Hong Kong, where he calls home. We'll have the full interview up on Facebook and YouTube. Now, no one really knows for sure how Hong Kong's new national security law will affect Taiwan, but we are monitoring a couple different possibilities. A recent foreign policy survey shows Taiwan is the top destination of choice for people fleeing Hong Kong, so we could see a big influx of Hong Kongers moving here. Presidential office spokesperson Kola Xiotaka tweeted on Tuesday that the law is being used to pressure Taiwan officials in Hong Kong to turn over information on politically persecuted Hong Kongers. She says Taiwan will resist this and stand with Hong Kong. An American journalist in Taiwan, Chris Horton, retweeted comments from a Beijing mouthpiece suggesting that even issuing Taiwan visas could be viewed as a violation of the national security law. Now, some of the world's biggest countries, like the U.S., Germany, and Japan, have spoken out against the law. Now, what kind of actions can countries take? Well, Hofstra University Law School professor Julian Koo called on countries to terminate their extradition treaties with Hong Kong. He says it will help their own citizens, not just Hong Kongers. Now, Canada has already suspended its extradition agreement with Hong Kong, but a lot of other major countries like the U.S., the U.K., India, Japan, and even much of Europe they still have those agreements with Hong Kong. Now, today we have already covered two of our doomsday scenarios on our Typocalypse bingo grid. We're going on now to hashtag Taiwan, where we're going to cover the third one. 
In today's three picks, we're going to take a look at pictures of our panda family at the Taipei Zoo. That's because Yuanzai celebrated her seventh birthday this week. And to make it a little bit more competitive, we only have one buzzer between these two guys, Leslie and Andrew. So whoever hits the buzzer first gets to answer. And you guys can do whatever you want to get to that buzzer. <laughs> I will slap that buzzer out of here just so you can't get it. I will do it. So we get to see the, the real side of them, the <laughs> competitive side of them. Okay, so let's take a look at the first picture of the newest member of the family. You guys remember this baby? Oh, so baby. Uh, this baby panda actually doubled her weight in 10 days. Now, how much does the panda baby weigh? <laughs> I told you guys last week. <laughs> 26 grams. No, more than that. <laughs> I'm going to say uh, 56 grams. No, 395 grams. Oh. She was 186 she was, last week. She was not week. that big last time you told us. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not that big. Uh, like a little marble. Okay, <laughs> now we're going to take a look at her older sister when she was uh, about six months old. Let's take a look at these Yuanzai pictures. Oh. Okay, aren't these adorable? Oh, and um, <laughs> about that time, she actually won a global internet vote. Um, it's called the Giant Panda Zoo Awards. What award did she win? What category did she win? There's categories mm -hmm. in the Giant For, Panda Zoo Award? Yes, around the world. I'm going to say she won most photogenic. Okay, and that sounds nice, but that wasn't the award. <laughs> Want to take a guess, Leslie? I'm going to say that she won the most floofiest ball panda <laughs> award. <laughs> That's a thing, right? That of sounds course, plausible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She Floofy. won best personality. Aww. Best Miss, panda personality. Miss congeniality. Yeah, really, for two years in a row, actually. Wow. We all know so. those pandas go through rigorous personality tests. <laughs> that is true. That asking is true. them what they feel about current events. I think she's an ENFJ. I'm not sure, but... <laughs> okay. Now, you guys are try for this next one, all right? Trying all right. to get this one right. Let's take a look at the parents, Chan Tuan and Yun Yun. Okay, so the zoo tries in many ways <laughs> Wait, to, get, what are they doing? <laughs> to get them to mate <laughs> successfully. Trying to take a nap. Okay. Um, and <laughs> yeah, he's, they're trying. And what they do is, like, they gave him a bridal chamber, a pool. Um, they kept him away for many months to see if they would, you know... Uh, be affectionate when they <laughs> saw each other, yeah, yeah. but it's very difficult to get them to uh, mate successfully because mm. of a small window that the female panda has each year when she's in heat. How mm. long is that window? Actually, I have <laughs> no know idea. That. I just want to get it first. <laughs> like, I'm going to say you studied this? it's once a year. Oh. Once a year. Uh, How long is that window? Two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. I'm going to say seven days. It's actually one to three days. Whoa, how do they know? That's like, that's really specific. So they know. Mm. I think they measure. And um, so that's why it never worked out. <laughs> do you know, it's interesting. I heard that in China, they actually sh sometimes show videos of Sex videos. pandas, <laughs> like, like adult you videos. Pull a little Barry White, little Marvin Gaye. Panda videos. Yeah. Panda, videos. panda videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not panda humans. videos. Luther yeah, yeah, Vandross, yeah, yeah. you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> So both of the little uh, pandas were artificially inseminated. Yeah. Okay. But anyways, they're well healthy and doing fine. And now let's take a look at the video of Yuan Tsai's seventh birthday party. 
Whoa there, clean up on aisle three. It's Yuanzai the panda's seventh birthday. But why doesn't the birthday girl seem happy? Taipei Zoo officials say they expected Yuanzai to make a beeline for her birthday spread and devour the meal. However, they say Yuanzai is in the midst of a false pregnancy, so she's pickier about what and when she eats. Instead of chowing down for viewers, Yuanzai walks around on the wooden scaffolding for a bit, contemplating life. For her seventh birthday, the Taipei Zoo prepared seven dishes shaped like Taiwanese delicacies. Fruits and vegetables are arranged to look like stinky tofu, Taiwanese sausages, and bubble tea. Even though the limelight has been on Yuanzai's baby sister, who was born just eight days ago, panda fans haven't forgotten about Yuanzai's birthday. One visitor brought her a homemade card, and another wishes her good health. With so much panda activity going on at the Taipei Zoo, you might call it pandemonium. Welcome to this week's Taiwan News Quiz, where I, once again, am master of the news. Now, Natalie and Andrew, you guys complain that my questions are too hard. Yet again, I am in the hot seat. What's going on? Uh, we want to challenge ourselves. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay, you yeah. want to challenge yourselves. I like that. 60 seconds on the clock, please. Here we go. Which prominent religious figure says they want to visit Taiwan? Dalai Lama. Correct. After their protest of the legislature failed, KMT lawmakers took up what classes in what sport? Uh, karate. Boxing. Boxing. I'll give that oh. to you. It's okay. okay. <laughs> the Taipei Zoo recently successfully bred what animal for the first time? Hint, it's not a panda. A monkey. It, it's a dart frog. That's right. A dart frog, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Where is the dart frog from originally? Uh, the Amazon. Very, okay, I'll give that to you. Peru. Peru. <laughs> Officials are considering giving school students the day off for what kind of extreme weather? Heat. Very good. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced it's reopening its representative office in which U.S. territory? Guam. Correct. A Chinese military official recently said that PLA can take over Taiwan in how many days? Ooh, Three days? Two. Seven days. It oh. would take a week. Oh. Last question, and here's a doozy. Guys, Taipei City offers an unlimited monthly pass for MRT and bus riders for $1,280 Taiwan dollars, which is $43.50 U.S. cents. One user is thought to have abused the pass. How much value in MRT rides did they rack up on the monthly oh, pass? On like 3,900? 3,800? 5,000. No, 10,000 new Taiwan <laughs> oh, dollars, what? which is 340 US dollars. Seven times what that pass is worth. So it went to Danse every, every day or something? I, it's like, <laughs> but even then, that's like one way to Danse is like, what, 80 NT? So like, how, how do you do that? I mean, oh. you share it amongst a bunch of people? They're saying that the person who did it is just, they are delivery. They're doing oh, delivery. So they're in and sense. out all the time. So you just have to make sure you don't come in and out the same station, right? So you could go in the station, go all the way to Danse and come out like the station... Like one stop from here. I yours. guess so. I mean, either that or they're just riding the MRT for fun, just trying to get the best yeah. bang for their buck. Maybe I shouldn't have taught everybody how to do that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Taiwan Insider <laughs> giving you tips on how to use a monthly pass. And that's this week's Taiwan News Quiz. So thank you once again for joining us for this inside look at Taiwan Insider this week. Yes, and give us more ideas and comments below. We'd love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Radio Taiwan International. Any day, any time at English.RTI.org.tw. 台湾 Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. Taiwan is watching Hong Kong very closely, especially after Beijing enacted a new national security law on July 1st, last week. Now today I speak with Frank Ching. He is a well-known journalist, writer, and professor at Chinese University of Hong Kong. To talk about this new law, he tells me first what the mood in Hong Kong has been since it came into effect. I think the, the mood, uh, generally speaking, is uh, somber. Mm. People are taking this very seriously. They're not sure exactly what's going to happen next. Uh, there are some people who are quite alarmed. Uh, there's a lot of talk about leaving Hong Kong, you know, emigrating to somewhere else, including Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people are, are also uh, trying to scrub out what they had said previously on social media. And, and there's some democratic you know, parties that are disbanding, and people yes. are trying to you know, um, keep safe, basically, right? Yeah, well, the, the most uh, obvious one is the uh, demo system. Right. Joshua Wong, you know, who's very well known, uh, he and Nathan Law uh, and another co-founder, uh, the three of them all announced that they were withdrawing from the organization. And then after they were gone, the organization announced that it was shutting them down. There was no, no point continuing anymore. And one of them, Nathan Law, actually has fled Hong Kong. We, we don't know where he is. But this law is not retroactive. So whatever they have done up up until June 30th, should not be held against them. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. You know, people around the world are actually very nervous about the law too. Officials in Taiwan have been telling us here to avoid unnecessary travel to Hong Kong. Their American academics are saying that this law has targeted everyone on the face of the earth. Because if you've said something that is offensive to China, they could you know, detain you if you're transiting through Hong Kong. Do you think that uh, we need to be that nervous? Well, I, I think it's better to be cautious, but uh, this law really is a law about Hong Kong. So if, if people had said something critical of China in the past uh, and that had nothing to do with Hong Kong, I don't think that uh, this should be any additional uh, cause for concern. But uh, I, I noticed that uh, some people are saying we shouldn't go to Hong Kong anymore. Uh, and I, I can understand why they're, they're worried. And I think that uh, there should be probably a, a period of a, a wait and see, see what actually happens in the weeks to come. I, I think that uh, they will honor this uh, uh, position in the law where it is not attractive. And so only people who uh, should do things contrary to the national security law, you know, from say July 1st on, would be held to account. And uh, as you know, the uh, heaviest penalty is uh, life in prison, which is a, a pretty uh, grim prospect. But those uh, are supposed to be very, very, very few individuals would encounter a case like that. 
So Beijing is trying to stop all the protests and basically any democracy movement in Hong Kong. Do you think this is putting an end to all of that? Oh, I think the protests, uh, what we saw last year, will stop. It's not going to come back. There will not be uh, like every weekend, huge protests ending in violence. And I think that that was very counterproductive anyway. Peaceful protests are uh, fine and good, but then degenerated into violence almost every time. Uh, Protests would start peacefully and then pretty soon some people would be off, go somewhere and and take actions that that were really uh, uncalled for. So uh, I myself uh, am happy that those protests are over. I think that uh, the business community at large is very happy that the protests are over because uh, you know, uh, they really had a negative impact on the Hong Kong economy. And uh, business wants to go back to doing business. And you cannot do business with a situation uh, that prevailed in the second half of uh, 2019, where you could not travel because you didn't know if the subway system was going to work. And almost every weekend it did not work. Uh, and uh, there were petrol bombs um, that were thrown everywhere and tear gas was fired by the police everywhere. So it was really a, a very, very bad situation. So I, I think it's a good thing that that is over. But I don't think that people will stop wanting to have democracy, but they will have to go about it peacefully. And I think uh, more realistically. They've also been um, detaining people who have flags related to Hong Kong independence or slogans. Is that true? Yes. Uh, now, I think that that is a that, that's a little confusing because if people are waving a banner calling for Hong Kong independence, I think you can say that uh, they are taking action to maybe incite other people to support independence. But then the police are searching belongings of people and they find a slogan in somebody's backpack, they person. Right. Even though the person hasn't really done anything except to possess that slogan. And I, I'm not sure that possessing a slogan should in itself be an uh, illegal act. You have to take some action for, for it to consider a crime. And just walking around with something hidden in your backpack uh, that should not constitute illegal uh, action. Well, it seems that because of the vague language of the law and, you know, of the crime, secession and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, state subversion, it, it seems that there's a, so much room for interpretation by the Chinese authorities. And that's why everybody's nervous. You know, people yes. think they can basically think, target anybody if they want to. I think that that's a very serious problem, that the law is not narrowly drafted. In fact, it's very broadly drafted. Uh, the terms are vague. There's no definition of what constitutes national security or what a state secret is. So uh, people are not sure that what they're doing might be uh, a violation of the law or not. So in, in those circumstances, the authorities uh, have much wider scope uh, in which they can decide whether they want to arrest someone or, or not arrest someone. And, and the public at large is unsure what it is that they're allowed to do and what it is that they're not allowed to do. So I think that that is not a good situation and that needs to be uh, clarified. Uh, and I think the scope of the law ought to be very clearly and narrowly defined.
uh, and uh, to say that a slogan in itself is illegal, I, I think uh, is, I would disagree with uh, that approach. It also mentions closer management of foreign entities in Taiwan. Oh, not Taiwan. In Taiwan as well, actually, political parties. That's one thing that they said they should report to Hong Kong. They also, in the law, it says that, you know, uh, foreign media and NGOs, you know, should be monitored closely. So basically a, a much closer management of these foreign-based businesses. Isn't yes, that going to well, drive, drive them away from Hong Kong? Certainly. The, the media is very concerned. You know, uh, today there was a, a lunch discussion at the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong. I tried to sign up for it, but it was already full. So I, I, I couldn't go, but it just shows you uh, how many people are interested in, in this topic. The chairman of the Hong Kong Journalists Association said he's, he's being inundated with questions by his members. Just what is it that we're allowed to do? What is it that we're not allowed to do? And it's simply not clear. Uh, so I think that these things ought to be made clear. And uh, it should be clear that journalists, when they go about their work, are not transgressing the law. It is their job to report. Now, I remember uh, that before 1997, before the handover, a uh, top Chinese official, Lu Ping, had said, after 1997, Hong Kong newspapers cannot advocate Taiwan independence. But if other people advocate this, you can report this as news. However, after 1997, especially when Sun Chui-bian was elected, Chinese officials came out and said, you shouldn't even report it as news because by reporting this, you are promoting these ideas. So I, I don't know exactly what they're going to do this time, but I, I really think that they should let the media know what it is that they're allowed to do, what the rules are. With this new law, people are wondering if it is safer to travel to China than Hong Kong. Do you see a difference? I must say I feel less secure in Hong Kong now than I did mm-hmm. a week ago. Uh, because now you have these uh, um, basically secret police operating in Hong Kong who are not accountable. Uh, And uh, uh, you know that the law set up uh, this uh, office uh, to safeguard national security. And uh, this office is entirely run by people sent from the mainland. And they are not subject to Hong Kong law. They're not subject to the Hong Kong police. So they can come knocking on your door, and if you don't open the door, they can break it down. You call up the police for help, and the police cannot help you because these people are not bound by Hong Kong law. So I think that that thought is very scary, that you have people who can do whatever they want to. And of course, other people say, well, if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have to worry about it. (laughs) I worry about the fact that there are people with such extraordinary powers that they can do whatever they want and there is simply no curb on them. And the security law very clearly says that the police cannot search them, cannot question them. That is simply beyond the reach of the Hong Kong police. So I I think that 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 is concerning. And within Hong Kong itself, they've set up this committee uh, that is headed by the chief executive, the Committee for Safeguarding National Security. And uh, a uh, Chinese official is the advisor, the national security advisor. And I think that uh, the advisor probably exercises a great deal of influence uh, within that committee.
and that committee only deals with internal Hong Kong affairs. Those people uh, investigated by that committee, the majority of them will be dealt with in Hong Kong and not sent to the mainland. But the office set up by the mainland, the, the people they investigate, they will be sent to the mainland for trial. And there you have no uh, legal protection. That is veteran journalist, writer, and professor at Chinese University of Hong Kong, Frank Ching. I'll be speaking with him more next week about Hong Kong's new national security law. Next up, our weekly news quiz. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Welcome to this week's Taiwan News Quiz, where I, once again, am master of the news. Now, Natalie and Andrew, you guys complain that my questions are too hard. Yet again, I am in the hot seat. What's going on? Uh, we want to challenge ourselves. Yeah, right? oh, exactly. Yeah. Okay, you want to challenge yourselves. I like that. 60 seconds on the clock, please. Here we go. Which prominent religious figure says they want to visit Taiwan? Dalai Correct. After their protest of the legislature failed, KMT lawmakers took up what classes in what sport? Uh, karate. Boxing. Boxing. I'll give that to you. It's okay. okay. (laughs) The Taipei Zoo recently successfully bred what animal for the first time? Hint, it's not a panda. A monkey. It's a dart frog. That's right. A dart frog, that's right. Where (laughs) is the dart frog from originally? Uh, the Amazon. Very, okay, I'll give that to you. Peru. Peru. (laughs) Officials are considering giving school students the day off for what kind of extreme weather? Heat. Very good. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced it's reopening its representative office in which U.S. territory? Guam. Correct. A Chinese military official recently said that PLA can take over Taiwan in how many days? Ooh. Three days? Two. Seven days. It'll oh. take a week. Last question, and here's a doozy. Guys, Taipei City offers an unlimited monthly pass for MRT and bus riders for $1,280, which is $43.50 U.S. cents. One user is thought to have abused the pass. How much value in MRT ride did they rack up on the monthly oh, pass? On like 3,900? 3, 3,800? 5,000. 10,000 new Taiwan dollars, which is 340 US dollars. Seven times what that pass is worth. That is this week's Taiwan News Quiz. And that's Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. John Van Trieste and the destination 1908. Of all the artists Taiwan has produced, few have achieved the stature of Guo Xuehu. Over a life that spanned more than a century, this painter loomed large. While still young, he created images that have gone on to define an era of Taiwan's history. And though he would spend his later life far away from Taiwan, memories of the place continued to inform his work. 
Most stunning of all is the degree to which he was self-taught, taking in all the visual culture around him and with nothing but his talent to rely on, making it his own. Here to discuss the life and work of this artistic giant is Lin Yuchun, a former curator at the Taipei Museum of Fine Arts, the home of many of his works. Guo Xuehu was born in 1908 in a place called Da Daocheng. If there was any place in Taiwan where people and ideas circulated, this was it, and it had been that way for a long time. After the opium wars of the previous century, this became a mercantile gateway to the world. Over time, Da Daocheng would be absorbed by the new city of Taipei, while still retaining its colorful identity. Guo Xuehu was born into a Taiwan subject to Japanese colonial rule. At the time he was born, it had been a Japanese possession for more than a decade. But despite the new rulers, Da Daocheng continued to thrive. The Japanese built a railroad linking Da Daocheng all the way to Taiwan's south and turning it into a domestic transport hub as well. Every year, when Da Daocheng's annual City God Festival rolled around, merchants from all over northern Taiwan would come to sell their wares. This colorful, eclectic world would one day show up clearly in Guo's works, and perhaps because of where he grew up, he was never afraid to mix, match, and blend cultures. But Guo Xuehu's career as an artist began with him dropping out of school. Guo was interested in art and drawing, and he'd gotten into a school where he could pick up the skills he'd need to do this for a living. Unfortunately, this was an industrial school, and he knew he did not want to spend the rest of his life making the architectural drawings he was being taught to make. So he dropped out. With the help of his mother, he was able to enroll instead in the studio of a Chinese ink painting master, the closest thing to an art school Taiwan had in those days. The style of art he learned there harkened back to an earlier time, before Japanese rule, when Imperial China ruled Taiwan instead. It seems that he excelled in his learning. Ms. Lin says his apprenticeship ended after just a year, far faster than average. Going forward, though, he faced a challenge. He was on his own, left to make a living with nothing but his own resourcefulness. This concern with making ends meet is the reason why his early works are mostly things he knew would sell. Images of Buddhist deities, hanging scrolls, and paintings of lucky flowers like peonies. But his interests, and crucially his talent, went far beyond this. Without a teacher or an academy to turn to, he began copying artworks out of painting albums and studying art in library books. In 1927, this self-study paid off. This was a life-changing year, the year his work was chosen to appear in the first-ever Taiwan Art Exhibition. Ms. Lin says the question of why his work was chosen is a complicated one but she suggests it might have something to do with a kind of three-dimensionality in his ink paintings that set them apart. The work that was chosen for the exhibit was called Stream Through Pine Ravine. 
This exhibition proved to be a launchpad for Guo's career. It was here that he made his name as one of the three young rising stars of the Taiwanese art scene. But he couldn't just rest on his laurels, and this may be why his style began to change. Ms. Lin says he certainly faced pressure, as his peers tended to have a more modern style. For another exhibit the following year, Guo Xuehu painted something completely different. It's a rich green painting showing a mountain with trees, a figure tending a lush vegetable patch, and part of an iron bridge peeking out from behind the detailed foliage. This painting, called Scenery Near Yuan Shan, depicts a view we hear know well, a mountain scene right next to what are now RTI Studios. Unlike his ink paintings, big and full of empty spaces, this work and others that followed are densely packed, use intense colors, and are highly detailed, with every single leaf and blade of grass jumping out. In part, Ms. Lin says, this change came from looking at the works of other artists at the 1927 Expo, especially the Japanese artist Gohara Goto, who would later become his mentor. Then there were also densely packed Tang Dynasty works from China that Guo came across in his library books. By the 1920s, Da Daocheng, where Guo had grown up, had become an even more exciting place to be. Here was a ferment of ideas and personalities, and a Taiwanese cultural and political movement. In 1930, Guo captured the place at its most exciting in the painting Festival on South Street, perhaps the most famous painting he would ever make. Every inch of the canvas is covered in something of interest. From up above, we can see a massive religious procession underway. It marks the day when the spirits return to the other world at the end of what's called Ghost Month in late summer. As people fill the street, incense smoke fills the air, while in front of us, a jungle of shop signs and spectators fill the upper stories of the buildings along the street. Ms. Lin says the painting is important for its depiction of modern buildings in Taiwan. It's an interesting blend of realism and imagination. The scene is based closely on places that actually exist, but it's not a photograph. For one thing, its composition features two points of view instead of one. We look down on the street festival, but also up and up towards the sky. There are also some artistic liberties. Some of the shops would have existed, but not in this part of the city. And then there's also the fact that the end of Ghost Month was never so crowded in Da Daocheng. If you remember from earlier, what really brought in the crowds was the city god's birthday earlier in the year. One of the most interesting aspects of this painting is Guo's eclecticism, here on full display. The painting is a vivid depiction of Taiwan's ethnic Chinese life, showing religion and clothing, and suggesting other things like fortune-telling from the shop signs. But the painting is executed in the Western medium of gouache, and the aesthetics seem to borrow heavily from the tradition of Japanese woodblock prints. Ms. Lin says the influence of Japanese prints can be seen in the choice and application of color. 
Even the shop signs are eclectic, with Chinese and Japanese signs side by side. Ms. Lin tells us to notice these signs. Among them, many advertise souvenirs of Taiwan for travelers and are covered in designs drawn from Taiwan's indigenous people. Are these indigenous-themed shop signs just there to show us what kinds of souvenirs colonial travelers wanted to buy? Or could Guo be using them to assert a kind of Taiwanese identity among all of these Japanese elements? It's a painting full of thought-provoking details just like this one. View of South Street has become a monument of Taiwanese art and a visual shorthand for the creativity of Da Daocheng under colonization. But Guo Xuehu was only in his 20s when he painted this scene, and he would live to be over a hundred years old. There's a lot more ground to cover still, and that is what we'll do next week when Ms. Lin joins us again for another look at this giant of Taiwanese art. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. Volcanoes in Taiwan. Well, we always knew that Taiwan was created by volcanoes, but we always thought they were extinct. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to be telling you why they are creating a brand new volcano warning system for Taiwan. All right, this is exciting, kind of. <laughs> yeah, kind of scary. Yes, but uh, tell us what we need to know, Andrew. All right, well, let's start off with telling you where these volcanoes are located. Now, if you live in northern Taiwan, you're definitely going to want to watch this. It's hard to imagine a volcano erupting in Taiwan, but there are actually volcanoes in Taipei, including more than 20 in the Datun Volcano Group. And then there's Turtle Island off the coast of Yilan County. Taiwan's top research body, Academia Sinica, says that what were thought to be extinct volcanoes are actually active. The Central Weather Bureau's Lin Zhu Wei says there's evidence of a volcanic eruption some 6,000 years ago. Academia Sinica says that seismic waves suggest there's a magma chamber about 30 kilometers deep. And like a ticking time bomb, the Datun volcanoes could go off at any time. And in their path, some of Taipei's most populated districts, Taiwan's tallest building, Taipei 101, is just 15 kilometers away. So, Andrew, how likely could a volcano erupt in Taipei? Well, uh, the last time it happened, as we just heard, was about 6,000 years ago. Now, in order for it to be extinct, it has to be 10,000 years ago. But still, 6,000 years, that's, that's, that's a, a chunk long of time. time. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> we so shouldn't I, worry too much. Eh, but still, we have this new warning system just in case. And it's a three-tier warning system that I'm going to tell you about now. So first of all, a green light indicates normal activity. A yellow light suggests abnormal activity and means that a watch is in effect. And a red light is a warning that an eruption has taken place or could take place soon. So if there happens to be an eruption or is about to be an eruption, what's going to happen is they're going to send us one of those like presidential alerts like we get for a typhoon or uh, a similar natural disaster. And what they do is they geo-target those text messages. So it'll send it to everybody that's in the vicinity that could be affected. So how do they know a volcano would erupt? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked me that. So scientists are looking at three different things. Uh, the first is they're looking at changes in the Earth's crust. 
The second is they're uh, detecting certain types of gases which may be released from inside the Earth. And the last is they're monitoring changes to underwater temperatures. Okay, so we hope those things don't happen, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is our Taiwan Explained on Volcanoes. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.